0: Howard Abbey Hoffman wrote Revolution for the Hell of It in a two-week period during the aftermath of the 1968 Democratic National Convention protest in Chicago. The title was intended to reflect the flippancy of a brash kid, however, he would later feel that it still embodied the view of the time period and of human nature. The title was also an attempt to shut down and demolish the critics who looked to analyze and find the explanation in an unfulfilled childhood, negative traumas, or repressed libidinal instincts. He did not sign the book with his own name. A fact that his publisher would later tell him would have most certainly helped him sell more than 50,000 additional copies. Instead, Hoffman scrawled on the cover what he deemed to be the most popular word in the English language. It was the only word including love, charity, equality, peace, or any ism he felt was non-corruptible. That word was free. His next book, however, which would bear his own name, would become his most controversial. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, revolutionaries, and stealing. I'm your host, Jason Nemo Harden, and on this episode, we explore Abby Hoffman's legendary novel, Steal This Book. Quote, it's embarrassing. You try to overthrow the government and you wind up on the bestsellers list." Ever since Abby Hoffman had written and distributed the survival handbook titled Fuck the System, street people had gone out of their way to keep him up to date on the latest ripoff scams. Even as a teenager, he was fond of such information, and he loved to hear about it as much as he loved to pass it on. Fuck, the system had essentially been the same thing, only in literary form. Now, one summer at the beach as a teen, as he remembered listening attentively to a traveling guru as he demonstrated how you could fashion a clothes hanger into a tool that, when pushed correctly into a telephone coin slot... (laughs) telephone coin slot a time way before cell phones, kids. Anyway, this modified hanger would trigger the phone to release any money deposited, giving one free calls. And when Abby brought this knowledge back to his local pool hall, someone showed him another trick. Watch this, the individual said as he pulled an oversized thumbtack out of a box he carried in his pocket. Expertly, He pushed the point through the telephone cord and rubbed it against a nearby metal pipe. Like magic, the dial tone signaled that the phone was engaged. Now, due to hardware updates, by the 60s, all of these techniques were outdated, which motivated Hoffman to update them. His philosophy concerning this was quite simple. Both the bank and the bank robber had to keep up with the times, with the prize going to whoever stayed one step ahead. Morality only seems to enter the picture only when individuals interact with each other, Hoffman wrote. He went on. It's universally wrong to steal from your neighbor. But once you get beyond the one-to-one level and pit the individual against the multinational conglomerate, the federal bureaucracy, the modern plantation of agribusiness or the utility company, it becomes strictly a value judgment to decide who exactly is stealing from whom. One person's crime is another person's profit. Capitalism is licensed to steal. The government simply regulates who steals and how much. He had always wanted to put together an outlaw handbook that would help raise consciousness on that point, while at the same time doing something about evening the score. Also, there was the challenge of testing the limits of free speech. By chance, Hoffman ran into Jason Epstein on the street. Epstein had been Hoffman's mentor at Random House during the writing of his most recent work, Woodstock Nation, and Jason asked him if he was working on anything in particular at the time. Hoffman told him, Jason, I'm going to write a book no one will publish. Jason Epstein began laughing uncontrollably. (laughs) Abby, you could piss on paper someone would publish it, Jason said. And when the first 100,000 copies went into the stores, the back cover read, Steal this book. The booksellers hit the roof. Tell them to steal from the banks. Tell them to steal from the phone companies. Tell them to steal from anybody. But don't tell them to steal from me, the book dealers had pleaded. (laughs) Well, Random House did decide to remove the troublesome slogan for the second round of printing. Woodstock Nation went through nine or ten printings, some with the slogan intact, others without, all depending on which side yelled the loudest. Most important, however, was that it whetted Hoffman's appetite for trouble. Now he wanted the very troublesome slogan to be the title of the book. He reasoned that no one could censor the book title and began with the title and the challenge in his back pocket. A Year of Writing Lay Ahead. He set off on a journey cross-country, interviewing doctors, fugitives, dope dealers, draft dodgers, private detectives, country communalists, veterans, organizers, and even shoplifters. Every time he met someone living on the margins, he asked about a good ripoff or survival scheme. People loved to tell how they screw the establishment and were eager to talk about it. One day he met with a New York media collective calling themselves video freaks and asked them if it was possible to pirate an image onto network television. Curiosity was sparked. Thus, they bought equipment and began running tests. Then one evening, during broadcasting of the news, a couple engaging in the act of sex appeared on a number of television sets in the Soho area of downtown Manhattan. <laughs> it worked. The media collective were spooked and scrambled. Of course, the technique they used went on to live in the pages of Steal This Book. Then, one night, a pale figure appeared and introduced to Abby a two-inch ivory plastic cube with four prongs sticking out of one side. The mysterious figure told him that when you put the device up to a payphone, you could call for free. It wasn't the most easy device to use, but it worked. Hoffman and his group bought 100 of the devices and distributed them to movement groups around the country. Furthermore, he managed to talk the mystery figure into sharing the wiring diagrams with him. And yes, these he also printed in the book. Despite going into illegal activities, most of the sections of the book dealt with legal ones. These included how to run a cheap farm, how to set up a newspaper, how to organize a demonstration, how to perform first aid, hitchhike, even how to equip an apartment with furniture. He invented many of the survival techniques, although most were revisions of things he had learned on the street. In part, the book was a tongue-in-cheek parody of America's love for how-to manuals, as well as a way to stick it to the system. The work was rewritten and edited several times in hopes of making it more simple, easier to understand, and in essence, making it something that could be understood by someone who had never read books before. It had taken a lot of travel and devotion, but after a year, the book was finished. Nothing like it had ever been written. Chris Surf was his editor at Random House, but no matter how hard he tried to champion the book, Random House said no. After further consideration, knowing that it would sell, they said they would do the book, but only if Hoffman agreed to several changes. Abby then went to Jason Epstein's office and told him, But Jason, you're censoring my book. Jason got all red and puffy. Random House does not censor books. He shot back. Then he said, We edit. That's it. Random House edits books. Now, despite all agreeing that the book would without a doubt make money, the publishers were too afraid of the backlash from the phone companies, or even worse, the government. Next thing you know, 30 publishers rejected the book. Not to say that there weren't offers, it's just that they were all demanding changes. Most demanded changes concerning the title. One offer was for an unsurpassable $40,000 in advance if the proper changes were made. $40,000 then is approximately $300,000 today. So quite more than a substantial amount. And one had to be crazy to refuse such an offer. Even Hoffman thought so. Well, lucky for him and curious minds, he was definitely crazy. December 1970, just before he landed in jail for a few weeks following the chaos in Chicago, he met Rev. Thomas King Forcade. Forcade, being the founder of an underground news service, had some minimal experience in publishing. He was interested in the book. Hoffman's two-week stay at Chateau Jail were spent finishing the book's introduction, while Forcade was to work on the editing. When Hoffman returned to regular society, he found that Forcade had concluded that publishing the book outside of mainstream wasn't something he was willing to do, and he demanded $8,000 from Hoffman for the two weeks he had spent editing. Hoffman then told him where to stick it. Forcade threatened to sue. And that was that. Next on the list of potential publishers was Grove Press. They told Hoffman that if he could raise money to publish the book himself and bring them 100,000 finished copies and bear all the legal risk, they would serve as distributor. He met their offer by borrowing $15,000 from friends to found pirate editions, layouts, designs, more loans, typesetting, paste ups were arranged and the ads were composed and sent out before long. 100,000 books packed in cartons labeled, still this book began making their way around the country. As head of the publicity department, Hoffman sent copies for review. Everyone declined to review it. As head of public relations, Hoffman sent away 2,000 copies to movement groups. Every underground newspaper was sent a signed letter authorizing them to reprint the entire book and sell it locally as a fundraiser. British rights were given away free to an Irish civil rights group. Scotland Yard, not surprisingly, disapproved of that and banned the book from England. Soon there was a pirated Spanish version, as well as a French-Canadian edition being distributed for free. Though the Japanese bought the rights for just $100, they sold something close to 50,000 copies of the book. Back in the good old USA, however, half of the distributors refused to carry the book. Cartons of books were shipped back and forth, and as a consequence, many cartons were going missing. A list of bannings, refusals to carry, confiscations, and all sorts of shady methods were used to take down the author and his book. One such instance was the Benjamin News Company in Montreal, which was raided by the Royal Canadian Police with a search and seizure warrant. Consequently, 4,000 copies of Steel this book were confiscated. For the first time in history, Canada had banned the importation of a book for other reasons than pornographic. Even college campus stores, which were a wasteland, all refused to carry the book. And adding insult to injury, even Hoffman's alma mater, Brandeis, refused. Then came the real chaos. Libraries across the country banned it. Numerous meetings were held over whether or not it should be allowed to be loaned from libraries. In Lansing, Michigan, the police caught two men running from a vacant building just as its doors had been blown off. A copy of the book was found on one of the men, and the police, in a far-reaching move, attempted to indict Hoffman on a conspiracy charge. Then in Grenada, a small island in the Caribbean, the Prime Minister arrested opposition leader Maurice Bishop on a charge of illegal possession of ammunition. And when the police kicked in Bishop's door, they found, wouldn't be too hard to guess, a copy of "Steal this book. And the government claimed that this was proof of foreign involvement in a plot to assassinate the Prime Minister. In yet another incident in Oklahoma, A watchdog of the faith filed a class action suit for a million dollars against Hoffman for allegedly corrupting the youth. And in yet another case, the director of corporate security for AT&T tried to get fraud perpetrators to confess that they had come under the influence of the book. The director blamed Hoffman personally for a $10 million increase in the number of phony credit card calls. Hoffman was also accused of contributing to inflation because shoplifting raised prices. (laughs) The bad or sad or funny news, depending on how one chooses to view it, continued to roll in as he began receiving letters which began, Well, I followed your advice and got busted. Please send me bail money. In regards to the AT&T case, They told the New York Times that a team of lawyers was researching ways to stop the book. Getting any promotion also proved difficult. With the exception of a small radio station in Boston, everyone rejected the radio commercial which Hoffman had personally put together himself. Furthermore, the San Francisco Chronicle was the sole newspaper to publish an ad. And the New York Times acceptability department wrote to Hoffman that the Times refused to advertise a book that advocated illegal activity. While the New York Post ironically rejected an ad, even though the book was listed for eight weeks on their paperback bestseller list. Grove Press estimated that half the books were being sold in New York City alone and that half their outlets refused to carry the book. In Pittsburgh, no stores carried the book. In Philadelphia, there was only one store, and that one would charge a dollar more than the cover price. When Hoffman took reporters on a tour there, no copies of the book could be found. Now, the San Francisco Bay Area was copulous as well. Then there was the Doubleday chain, whose entire line of bookstores boycotted the book. No book had been met with such a boycott since Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, which, by the way, You can learn more about on episode 52 of House of Words podcast. Then finally, Hoffman and his book got a break when Dotson Rader wrote a glowing review of the book in the New York Times, writing, everyone in publishing and distribution and in the press who had aided and abetted the restriction of Abby Hoffman's freedom to be heard ought to be deeply ashamed. The irony is that those who refuse to publish or advertise or review or sell Hoffman's book in the name of legality are doing more damage to America's freedom under the law than Abby Hoffman could do with all his books. Hoffman clipped the review, wrote a check, and sent it to the Times as a new ad. Believe it or not, the Times actually refused their own review. <laughs> Now that same review went on to embarrass a few stores, with some even buckling under the customer pressure. People actually began boycotting stores that refused to carry the book. In the end, as a last attempt to promote it, Hoffman being head of the promotion department, decided to cross the country, appearing on talk shows, giving interviews. Abby Hoffman's experience with steal this book taught him some remarkable things about the media. He would hire a a clipping service to keep track of the publicity campaign and was flabbergasted by the distortions and lies fabricated by the mainstream media. In Boston, for example, Hoffman was asked what he would do if someone stole from him. He responded by saying, Well, I certainly couldn't call the local constable, could I? And that's how it read in the Boston Globe. The Associated Press, however, had quite a different interpretation. I would call a cop, of course, the distorted translation read. That translation was a big hit, viral in essence, as hundreds of newspapers liked that interpretation better than the truth, which meant that that was the story they ran with. At the time, Hoffman and his wife were living in a a $135-a-month, two-and-a-half-room railroad apartment on one of the worst blocks in the Lower East Side. He owned no property, not even a car, never invested a penny, never had more than a few thousand dollars in the bank struggling to support his three children. In the media, however, he was painted as a fashionable millionaire who routinely hung out with celebrities and movie stars in uptown clubs he had never been to. Hoffman collected scores of clippings and compiled a newspaper account made completely of lies he had read about himself in various publications. It was quite difficult to take serious, but probably just as easy for gullible readers to believe. In addition to all the defamation, there were other perhaps even more harmful households as well. For example, he was categorically refused any consumer credit just on general principle. His local supermarket went so far as to assign a special sales clerk to follow him up and down the aisles. Even when traveling, airline officials would place him into a little booth for examination. Foolishly, in hindsight, Hoffman regretted having stated in his book that he knew of two foolproof ways to fly for free, but that he couldn't mention them. As a result of this, he apparently received 200 letters that began, You can trust me never to tell anyone. In all, he received about 15,000 letters, most of which said that still this book was their favorite book, or asking how they could get a hold of a copy which may lead one to wonder when, or if, the censors and sanctionists will ever learn. According to Hoffman's autobiography, soon to be a major motion picture, the original manuscript of still this book wound up in the Columbia University Library. However, according to Bernard Crystal, curator of rare books and manuscripts at Columbia University, not only don't they have the original manuscript, they don't even have a copy of the published edition. As usual, let's end this episode with a quote from the one-man revolution himself. We were young. We were foolish. We were arrogant. But we were right. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemo Harden. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our patreon page at patreon.com/house words or paypal.me/house words podcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page House of Words podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think until next time keep turning those pages house of words is written and produced by crystal m sanchez narrated and written by me jason and music by creature nine and wood all rights and ownership belong to Cristo M. Sanchez and Jason Nemo Arden.